Thank you for listening, and welcome to the Titans of History series. Episode 25, Hohenlinden and the Rue Saint-Niquet. Well, folks, here we are, 25 episodes into our Napoleonic journey, and honestly, we're moving right along. I know that sometimes it can be a slog getting through some of the smaller and finite details in Napoleon's life as well as his reign, but without them, we don't get the context we need to lead up to the major events that truly define his legend. And so today, we're going to be wrapping up 1800 the War of the Second Coalition, and especially as it pertains to the Austrians, and talking about one of the great what-if moments of history in Napoleon's assassination attempt in the plot of the Rue Saint-Niquet. So strap in, because we've got about two full weeks of material to cover in this giant episode as my gift to you since I was out on vacation at a bachelor party down in Mexico last week. And while it was a lot of fun and the groom-to-be got the proper send-off of his bachelorhood that he deserved, I'm glad to be back truly relaxing, and doing what I love in talking to you fine folks about Napoleon Bonaparte. So thank you all for your patience in letting me have some time off, as well as getting this monster of an episode together. But now, let's get on with the show. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago how I wanted to do a supplemental episode on the Battle of Hohenlinden. But again, I figured we could tie it into this full episode since it really does put a bow on the War of the Second Coalition, at least, again, how it pertains to Austria. And it also ties in nicely to the Saint-Niquet plot exactly three weeks later. Plus, while we've spent a lot of time talking about Napoleon's campaigns down in Italy and in Egypt, I think it's high time we discuss perhaps the one theater of the Revolutionary Wars that saw the most action, and that, of course, would be the German theater. So let's rewind for a few minutes and talk about what the heck was going on in Germany, better known as the Rhine Campaign. After Napoleon's victories in Italy back in 1797 led to the signing of Campo Formio, and remember, this would be his first Italian campaign, France found that although they were victorious on the battlefield, enforcing the agreed-upon peace was far more difficult in practice. Austria, as we mentioned a few episodes ago when we began Napoleon's reconquest of northern Italy, his second Italian campaign, was reluctant to give up her Italian possessions, especially Venice, and with uprisings springing up around Switzerland and southern Italy, France, still under the leadership of the Directory at this point, decided it would be best to launch another assault on southern Germany and northern Italy to reinforce the terms of Campo Formio. By the start of 1800, the armies of both France and Austria would send tens of thousands of men across the Rhine, and the next 12 months would see some of the fiercest fighting of the War of the Second Coalition. Commanding some 120,000 troops from across the Habsburg Empire, General of Artillery Paul Cray positioned his main body of 95,000 regulars in an L-shaped formation near the French border, though many of them would be stationed south near Stockach along their main magazine, which was dangerously close to the French-allied Switzerland. While Napoleon would head south to handle the Austrian contingent taking back the territories that he had won three years earlier, Napoleon sent General Moreau to handle the Austrian contingent in Germany, mostly as a reward for his assistance in the coup of 18 Brumaire. 
And while we've mentioned him a few times already throughout our series, I think now is as good a time as any to give a quick introduction to General Division Jean-Victor-Marie Moreau, a mercurial man who was instrumental to Napoleon's rise and consolidation of power, just to be banished from France only five short years later. Jean-Victor-Marie Moreau was born in February 1763 in Morlaix, on the northwest coast of France in Brittany. So he was about six and a half years older than Napoleon, something which likely furthered their future rivalry and mistrust of one another due to Moreau's jealousy of the younger Napoleon's rise. His father was a prominent lawyer, and while the younger Moreau had always wanted to join the army, his father sent him away to university, where he set up a small commune army at school and would become their leader, something which served him well in his future military service. After the outbreak of the French Revolution in 1789, Moreau entered the army, and by 1791, thanks in large part to his Republican virtues and moral character, was promoted to lieutenant colonel. He served under Generals de Maurier and Pichegru, and was also commended by Committee of Public Safety member, future director, and future Minister of War under Napoleon, Lazare Carnot. Now this ultimately leading to his promotion to Brigadier General at the tender age of just 31. Moreau would secure his military fame in the Battle of Torquo in 1794, in which his counterattack badly scattered the separated coalition columns, forcing them to flee. This victory allowed the French to secure their northeastern flank on the border with the Austrian Netherlands, again Belgium, and Moreau was rewarded with commanding the Army of the Rhine and Moselle, which he used to further cross into German territory. Now, if you remember back to our episode, Peace, Fructidor, and Talleyrand, you'll remember that Moreau discovered treasonous correspondences between General Pichegru and an emigre named Prince de Caen. Now, while he did try to hide his own correspondences between the two, he was found out and has always been suspected of at least being complicit in the plot, likely because he wasn't given further commands to fight in the Rhine, i.e. he was bored. Now, although he was dismissed, with advancing Russian forces coming from the east, Moreau was eventually recalled to help fend them off first in Italy and then ultimately in Germany, while Napoleon was off trying to build canals in Egypt and pretend to be Alexander the Great. Now, though Moreau was ultimately defeated, and this is where much of what Napoleon had won in Italy in 1797 was recaptured by the Austrians, he would go back to Paris, where Napoleon found him also dissatisfied with the directory. Funny how that always seems to happen, isn't it? Quite convenient. Anyway, long story short, coup of 18 Brumaire, Napoleon is forever grateful, and while he goes off to reconquer Italy, Moreau is given the prestigious title of Commander of the Army of the Rhine, a theater he knew well, and terrain in which he was quite comfortable fighting in. Beginning from the Rhine, he would repel the Austrians all the way back to the Iser River in Bavaria, after which he returned to Paris, married a 19-year-old friend of Josephine de Bouhanet, and would return to campaign where he would author the magnum opus of his career, the Battle of Hohenlinden. Now, prior to Hohenlinden, Moreau was pushing through southwestern Germany. Now, Napoleon, often campaigned in Italy, did offer a reserve unit back through Switzerland, as well as an attack plan by outflanking the Austrians through the south. But Moreau, likely due to hubris, his distrust of Napoleon, or both, declined the offers. Instead, Moreau decided to cross the Rhine near Basel, where the river swung to the north. He used a decoy reserve from the west to lure Cray's men, hiding his true intentions. Now, through numerous outflanking maneuvers, Moreau would end up behind Cray, essentially cutting him off from lines of retreat back to Austria and Switzerland. But what ended up happening was that May of 1800 wound up being the bloodiest month of the Rhine campaign for either side. Numerous battles of attrition were fought for little territorial gains, and with the Austrians holed up in defensive positions in Massacre, 
the French launched numerous but ultimately fruitless assaults on their positions. As a result of all this fighting, both sides, exhausted, settled in their camps over the summer in which an armistice followed, during which Cray was replaced in his command by Archduke John, a member of the House of Habsburg-Laurent, whose parents came from noble Spanish and Italian stock. Now, after Napoleon's successful Italian campaign and the lulls in action in the Rhine, the Austrians refused to accept the terms set forth by the French, and fighting would resume in mid-November. Archduke John would march his armies towards Munich, and after small skirmishes at Amfing and Newburg, he would face off against Moreau at the small hamlet of Hohenlinden, about 33 kilometers east of Munich. Now, the Battle of Amfing on December 1st was an important element to leading to Hohenlinden. Now, despite the battle being an Austrian victory, the French were able to inflict some 3,000 casualties on the overstretched Austrian army, while only suffering around 1,700. The French general, Paul Grenier, had decided to abandon Hagen-Oberbayern, about 50 kilometers from Munich, which the Austrians took as a sign of full retreat. However, Moreau had other plans and decided to deploy his army of nearly 55,000 men to the open fields near Hohenlinden. When the Austrians decided to turn and fight Moreau, ostensibly to defeat the French once and for all in southern Germany, they needed to do so by marching through heavily wooded forest and blinding snow squalls. Now, Because of this, the Austrian columns were not well formed or mutually supporting, many believing that the French were actually in retreat rather than preparing for an all-out assault. Now, this confusion would be a big reason why, on December 3, 1800, General Moreau would author up the greatest victory of his military career. Now, Archduke John sent four columns to march on Hohenlinden, one from the north to cover the right flank, two from the west, with whom John rode, and one from the south. Now, initially, John believed that the French force there was nothing more than a standard rearguard, completely unaware that Moreau had actually decided to keep his entire army there to fight the Brunner John's forces head-on. Moreau, though, was initially planning to launch an offensive attack, but once he learned that the Austrian columns were approaching sooner than he had anticipated, he decided to change tact and formed a defensive line behind Hohenlinden. The Battle of Hohenlinden began in earnest at 7 a.m. on December 3rd in freezing conditions, with snow covering much of the battlefield right from the start. Austrian General Johann Kollerat's column's advance guard collided with French Colonel Pierre-Louis Bignet de Marconnier's infantry demi-brigade under the command of General and future Marshal of the Empire, Emmanuel de Grouchy. Now, Despite heavy fighting, Marconnier's line would hold their ground. And again, believing that they were only facing a rear guard, the Austrians continued to send in wave after wave of attack, only to be repulsed after Grouchy ordered his lines to be reinforced, ordering them again to counterattack the Austrian center. Now, frustrated, Colorado decided to hold his ground until the rest of the army could arrive. He would send two battalions south to make contact with Field Marshal Johann Riesch's column to search for help. Now, while all this was going on, further north of the Austrian center, Austrian Field Marshal Louis Willebrod Ballet's column was stalled due to the poor weather conditions as they did not have access to the all-weather roads like many of his comrades further south did. And due to the heavy fighting all around him, Belay would break his entire column, sending battalions north, south, and west to assist. But as a result, his critical north-central position was never able to engage the French head-on, something which would prove critical as the battle wore on. Now to the extreme north, that is, the right flank of the Austrian attack, Field Marshal Michael von Kienmeier easily pushed through the nearby towns of Buchenissen, being met with very little French resistance. However, 
What Kienmeier did not realize was that Moreau had intended to surrender the towns to draw the Austrian right further south so that he could engage them directly, not needing to worry about his weaker left flank, and hopefully inflict a decisive blow on the Austrian army. Now, Kienmeier's men split into two separate divisions under Archduke Ferdinand and Prince Karl of Schwarzenberg. Ferdinand's division headed west and was engaged by the French, but neither side were really able to gain an upper hand as the weather and the hard terrain made for a bloody stalemate. Schwarzenberg's division, though, pushed southwest and crashed into the divisions of General Louis Bastol and future Marshal of the Empire, Michel Ney. Moreau, sensing the encroaching danger, ordered Ney and Bastol to launch counterattacks, and the ensuing struggle over the nearby hamlet towns would last throughout the morning. Now, simultaneous to all of this happening, Riche, much like Ballet, was falling badly behind schedule. The snow and terrible conditions created great chaos for the Austrian southern column, but it also led to the French division under General Antoine Richepens to pass ahead of Riche, where they met the two battalions that Colorado had sent down earlier to make contact with Riche. Now, this unfortunate timing for Richepens led to his division being completely cut in half. Now, faced with the daunting choice of turning back to help his enveloped rear or continue forward with the attack, Richepens, who was at the head element of the division, decided against turning his front half to the rear and instead decided to keep moving forward with the attack with only half of his division. It was a decision that turned out to be the most important in the Battle of Hohenlinden. Taking the empty town of Meinbeth, Richepens was able to climb on top of a hill to gain a clear view of the highway that Colorado's men were using and immediately ordered an attack. Despite their small numbers from their separation earlier, Richepens's battalion advanced westward to attack Colorado's rear. Now Moreau at this point began to notice some hesitancy in the Austrian offensives, and he ordered his forces to attack, putting Colorado's forces in a sandwich between Moreau attacking their van and Richepens their rear. Now the situation on the ground was a little bit more fluid. The heavy snowfall and poor visibility saw numerous units on both sides stumble upon one another and launch into chaotic, confusing fighting. Moreau was then critically joined by Ney, who had joined forces with Grouchy's units prior to, and they were able to launch a successful counterattack on Colorado's confused forces. Richepens' men then successfully made contact with the rear, forcing Colorado's forces to fight a battle on two sides, in freezing blizzard conditions being completely enveloped. Simultaneous to all of this, the second half of Richemont's division under General Division Charles Descamps, that is, his former rear, moved southeast to engage Riche's scattered columns and pushed them all the way back from the fighting, disengaging them from the battle and critically cutting off their rear's access to the Austrian southern left flank. Now, just as this was happening, the Austrian columns under Colorat, joined by Archduke John, began to crumble under the French advance on both sides. It was here that Ney particularly distinguished himself, swinging around to the right and began pounding Colorado's forces, overrunning their positions and taking nearly a thousand prisoners and ten cannons. With their situation now hopelessly lost and being pinched in from three sides, the Austrians began to flee north, trying desperately to escape the wedge, with Archduke John nearly being captured in the French charge. When the other Austrian divisions learned of Colorado's collapse, they soon pulled back, knowing that their entire army had been split in two. What had seemed like a sure Austrian victory only 24 hours earlier turned into an utter rout. It was Moreau's greatest victory as a general, and really his last notable victory given his deteriorating relationship with Bonaparte. But the effects and aftermath of Hohenlinden cannot be overstated. Despite not being a victory personally led by Napoleon, its success proved vital for his staying power, as well as the termination of hostilities in the War of the Second Coalition for Austria. 
But with respect to the immediate aftermath, the Austrians suffered a decisive blow, both in terms of manpower and of bargaining power at the negotiating table. The Austrians reported nearly 800 killed, 3,700 wounded, 7,000 prisoners, and 50 cannons lost. Now, the French officially stated only 2,000 casualties, though several units failed to report their actual figures, and most historians believe the number to be in excess of 3,000. Still, it was a drop in the bucket to what the Austrians suffered. Including their Bavarian allies, the Austrian army suffered nearly 14,000 casualties against at most 4,000 for the French, with both armies of relatively comparable sizes. But the long-term effects of the battle were also substantial. The high command of the Austrian army for southern Germany, commanded by yet-to-be-mentioned Franz von Lauer, were largely blamed by the Austrian imperial court back in Vienna, and Lauer was made to be the scapegoat for the army's failure in Bavaria, and he was ultimately forced into retirement. On the whole, though, the reality was far more a reflection of what was actually happening throughout Europe. The Austrians lacked far less initiative than their French counterparts did. Their leadership, if you didn't notice, was made up of archdukes and other high-ranking members of the nobility rather than of seasoned professional soldiers, which the French had in droves. Their ability to fight through the winter elements, something which had been relatively rare in previous European conflicts featuring professional armies, can also not be overstated. Now, Moreau's forces continued their pursuit of the Austrians and within a week were only 80 kilometers from Vienna. Facing a prolonged siege and potential loss of their capital, Archduke Charles, younger brother to Holy Roman Emperor Francis II, requested an armistice, and Moreau granted it on Christmas 1800. The ending of the hostilities in the Rhine campaign led to the Treaty of Luneville, which was signed on February 9, 1801, by the French and the Holy Roman Empire. Now, the treaty ended not only the Austrian participation in the War of the Second Coalition, but also the French Revolutionary Wars. Only Britain remained at war with France, but their peace would be negotiated 13 months later in the Treaty of Amiens. In practice, though, all major hostilities ceased on the continent, the lone exception being on the Iberian Peninsula, which we'll get into a little bit more next episode. But that notwithstanding, for the first time in nearly a decade, the majority of the European continent saw peace. Now, as for the terms of Luneville, the treaty declared, quote, that there shall be, henceforth and forever, peace, amity, and good understanding among the signatories. Now, we all know that that wouldn't be the case for much longer, but in any event, Luneville further reinforced the terms agreed upon in Campo Formio, and it also forced the Austrians to recognize the uh, <coughs> independence and uh, <coughs> sovereignty of the Cisalpine, Ligurian, Batavian, and Helvetic republics. The entire left bank of the Rhine, as well as the Austrian Netherlands, were ceded to France, while all of Imperial Italy was also ceded to France, with parts of it actually becoming a part of France itself. Did we get all that? Good. Now, all the dukes of these acquired lands were compensated for their losses, and the Austrians were also able to retain parts of Venice and Istria, something which they desperately needed. Now, the compensation of the dukes, known as the Imperial Deputation, was the last major law passed by the Holy Roman Empire as a sovereign entity before its dissolution in 1806 following the Battle of Austerlitz. But that, as I'm sure you're aware, is a topic for a little bit further down the line. Hohenlinden was, as I've mentioned a few times already, a masterpiece for Moreau, but it also proved another vital cog in Napoleon keeping his authority. In fact, after learning of his victory, Napoleon wrote to Moreau in glowing praise, saying, quote, these wretched Austrians were very obstinate. They were relying upon the ice and snow, 
but they weren't yet acquainted with you. I salute you affectionately. Combined with the negotiated peace on the quasi-war with the United States back in September, Napoleon had knocked out two British allies that could have severely pinned France down in Europe, while also guaranteeing that she would have some access to her North American possessions, especially since Haiti was becoming an inferno. Now, Napoleon also used his fortunes provided by Hohenlinden to help further cultivate his relationship with Russian Tsar Paul I. Worried that Malta might fall to the British Navy, Napoleon simply gave Malta to Tsar Paul, officially due to his position as Grand Master of the Knights of St. John, but in reality, Napoleon was resigned to the fact that the island would fall to the British. And, indeed, while the British simply ignored this, and they would end up securing their capture of Malta on September 5, 1800, it did help improve the relationship between Napoleon and Tsar Paul. In fact, so cordial did their relationship become that Napoleon had plans to send upwards of 35,000 men under the command of Massena to join forces with the Russians in a joint invasion of British India. Now, the feasibility of a plan like this ultimately led to him deciding against it, but the thought alone further showed Napoleon's grandiose ambitions when it came to expanding his growing empire and his hatred for Great Britain. But before we get into all of that, Despite Napoleon's seeming invincibility on the battlefield as commander-in-chief, he did still have numerous enemies back at home. Crypto-royalists and conservative Catholics, the former angered by the fact that Napoleon had not brought back the Burman monarchy yet, as they had hoped, and the latter still incensed at what they saw as a betrayal of the Catholic Church in the Concordat of 1801, hatched up numerous plots to try and kill the young first consul. Napoleon also had numerous Jacobin enemies who believed that he was just the opposite a man trying to instill a neo-royalist regime with himself as king. So in short, he had enemies everywhere, and there were numerous assassination plots afoot. Some real, some not so much. But there were two that have caught the eyes of historians, and of course, of the First Consul. A month after Malta fell to Britain, Napoleon was allegedly targeted in what became known as the Conspiration de Poignards, literally the Daggers Conspiracy. Now, the conspiracy itself is still the subject of much conjecture, and it's possible the entire episode was simply drawn up by police chief Joseph Fouché as an agent provocateur. Fouché, in his memoirs, alleges that in mid-September 1800, plots were discovered aimed at assassinating Napoleon as he left the Opera House in Paris. Now, Fouché worked with his men to bring revelations to Louis-Antoine Favalet de Bourrienne, Napoleon's secretary, that plotters Giuseppe Caracci, Joseph Diana, Joseph Antoine Arena, brother of the Corsican deputy who had declared against Napoleon, the painter and patriotic fanatic François Topino Lebrun, and Dominique Demerville, a former clerk of the Committee of Public Safety. Now, a man named Harold, whose true identity has never clearly been established, was tasked with luring the conspirators into a trap outside of the opera house where Fouché's policemen would be waiting for them. On the day of the alleged attack, October 10th, the men stopped Diana, Sarachi, and two other accomplices. Now, the other conspirators, scared off by the police presence, abandoned their roles and returned home, though they would all later be apprehended at their residences. The men would be tried in January of 1801 and were presented as Jacobin sympathizers who had been influenced by international collaborators, though the truth to any of this is still widely debated today. Indeed, most modern historians believe that the entire operation was likely nothing more than a false flag as a way to further consolidate Napoleon's personal grip on power, and there is little tangible evidence that any, quote, dagger conspiracy was to ever take place. Now, the same cannot be said, however, for the more well-known event on December 24, 1800, and that, of course, is the plot of the Rue Saint-Niquet. On Christmas Eve, 1800, Napoleon and Josephine took separate carriages to the opera to listen to Hayden's oratorio, The Creation. 
On the corner of Place de la Carousel and the Rue Saint-Niquet, bundles of gunpowder were placed in a water barrel on the cart of a seed merchant drawn by a small horse owned by Joseph Picot de Limolion, a Chouanist who had recently arrived from exile in London and whose father had been a royalist guillotined during the Reign of Terror. Now, when Limolion arrived, he signaled to two other plotters to light the fuse. One, Pierre Robinol de Saint-Régin, a supporter of Louis XVIII, paid a 14-year-old girl named Marianne Poussault 12 souls to attend to the horse for a few minutes. What happened next was a matter of fate, misfortune for the plotters, and as always, incredible luck for Napoleon. You see, Napoleon was well aware that there were plots against his life at this point, but he was reassured by the consular guard that many of the plotters had been apprehended. And so, he reluctantly went to the opera, deciding to ride with a cavalry escort, including Berdier, Lan, and Colonel Jacques Lauriston, at this time Napoleon's aide-de-camp, but he, like Berdier Lan, would later become a marshal of the empire. Now, Napoleon was reportedly exhausted and did not want to attend the opera, and so he fell asleep in rout, and according to legend, had a nightmare about his defeats in Italy during the battles of the Second Bassano and Caldiero. And as it would turn out, Sigmund Freud would later write that this dream was a, quote, alarm clock dream, one which wove external stimuli into the dream structure in order to maintain sleep and prevent the subject from being disturbed by external noise. Now, as for that external noise, well, I'm glad you asked. Napoleon's carriage driver, and here's where we see that whole luck thing come into play again, was apparently pissed drunk and had decided to pick up speed as he approached the Rue Saint-Niquet. Now, due to this, Napoleon arrived far sooner than the plotters had anticipated, and Lemoleon, stunned to see the first consul there so soon, panicked and failed to signal the Saint-Régin in the Rue Saint-Niquet to light the fuse. Now, this failure cost Régin valuable seconds, and when he finally did light the fuse, he mistakenly took the leading grenadiers for Napoleon. He lit the fuse, and then he fled. Now, the bomb, which has become known in history as the Machine Infernale, literally the infernal device, exploded soon thereafter, killing the young Poussol along with five other bystanders and injuring over 26. Now, one of those injured was Josephine's daughter, Hortense, who received a cut on her wrist from a flying shard of glass. But aside from that, the entire Bonaparte party would survive unscathed. Josephine's car was close enough behind to feel the blast, but that was about it. Now, Napoleon awoke to the carnage, which, aside from the human toll, damaged 46 buildings in the vicinity. But he wasn't harmed, and he ordered the party to proceed to the opera, and when they arrived only a few minutes later, the audience began cheering his arrival after having heard of the entire ordeal. Speaking to his wife, Napoleon commented succinctly, quote, Josephine, those rascals wanted to blow me up. He then picked up his opera glass and began to watch the performance as if it had been just another day in the office because for the first consul, it was. After the performance, though, Napoleon would put on a show of his own. You see, Napoleon's reaction to the attempt on his life is still the subject of much conjecture even today, but he likely suffered from some form of PTSD from the ordeal, as he would refer to the event later in life. But there is some strong evidence that the plot of the Rue Saint-Niquet hastened the French public's fear for Napoleon's livelihood and therefore his rise to being emperor. At the same time, though, Napoleon used the event, as any dictator would, to help purge his enemies. But not exactly the enemies you would think. Because, you see, 
Napoleon was adamant that the plotters had been leftist Jacobins, not Shuanist royals, which had indeed been the case. And even after learning of the true culprits, Napoleon refused to pardon those innocents suspected of his assassination, choosing instead to expel them from France entirely. So why? Why would he do that? Well, you see, Napoleon was far more afraid of Jacobin sympathizers than royalist ones. He was adamant that the changes that he had made for France would eventually win over the vast majority of the conservative population, and thus better to deal with a few bad apples quickly and then wait it out. The Jacobins, however, were a different story entirely. See, Napoleon believed that the leftist factions to be a far more dangerous and direct threat to the government due to their ideology, familiarity with power, and their superior ability to organize resistance. Quote, With one company of grenadiers, I could send the whole Faubourg Saint-Germain flying, he remarked shortly after the ordeal, referencing royalist salons found in those areas. Quote, But the Jacobins are made of a sterner stuff. They are not beaten so easily. France will be tranquil about the existence of its government only when it's freed from these scoundrels. Only six years removed from his own arrest as a Jacobin, Napoleon's transformation away from their radical ideals was complete. Now, the following three weeks would see some impressive police work by Fouché and team, even by modern standards. And in fact, it was this police work that is still taught in many academies today as a great use of modern-day forensics. Their use of those forensics from the dead horse to interviewing witnesses to tracing business deals for specific materials actually led to the true culprits. But, as you can probably guess, that did nothing to help sway Napoleon, who was hellbent on using the episode for a good old Jacobin perch. On January 4th, 1801, Napoleon and his two consular colleagues, Cambacérès and Lebrun, issued a consular decree exiling 130 Jacobins from France, with their final destination being French Guiana, tantamount to a death sentence in those days due to the combination of heat, tropical disease, and poor sanitation in the colony. So feared was expulsion to Guiana, that it earned the nickname the Dry Guillotine for the certain suffering all of her new inhabitants were sure to endure. As for the decree, Napoleon's use of his colleagues in generating the proclamation was a perfect legal cover for his blatant use of personal rule. Now, as for the actual plotters, a chemist named only a Chevalier would end up executed for his role in making the bomb, though it was clear even to the investigators that the bomb he created did not resemble the one used in the plot of the Rue Saint-Niquet. Now, the man who constructed this specific bomb used in the plot, named only as Carbon, was arrested, tortured, and gave up Le Molion and Saint-Régent. Régent would be executed that April, while Le Molion would escape to the United States and become a priest in 1812 before dying in 1826, later expressing his guilt about the death of the young girl. For Napoleon, the plot of the Rue Saint-Niquet was a watershed moment and further validated his personal belief in law and order even as many of his own ministers, believed his policies too draconian even for the day. But Napoleon would have none of it. I mean, for his part, for the rest of his life, he would never let his intended destinations be known publicly until five minutes beforehand, just to ensure that a similar event would never take place again. And it's interesting, for a man that seemed to put himself at the front of death's door on a daily basis on the battlefield, he feared it happening to him in the most mundane of ways. And so we're going to leave it here for now. Next time, we're going to finally put to bed the War of the Second Coalition. Napoleon had made peace with Austria, yes, but Britain still remained the thorn in his side he just couldn't kick. 
until the next episode because we're going to be talking about the treaty that did, really, end the war of the Second Coalition and lead to the year of peace. And that treaty is, of course, the Treaty of Amiens.